I prepare so much more than some of my male colleagues. I know women who are prepared more, and we get ridiculed. You know, it's like, oh, my gosh, you know, she's just preparing so much. She's such an automaton. You know, can't she just, like, wing it? Well, I'm not comfortable winging it. Hi, I'm Carrie Budoff-Brown, editor of Politico, and welcome back to Women Rule, the podcast. We're here today to talk with Transportation Secretary Elaine Chao. She served in President George W. Bush's cabinet as Labor Secretary and was the first Asian-American woman in history confirmed to a cabinet secretary position. We talked with the secretary about her experiences as an immigrant, her long career in Washington, and what she does better than her male colleagues. Stay tuned for our interview. On our podcast, we'll be bringing you conversations and taking you backstage with women leaders, the big bosses in politics and policy. If you like our show, please subscribe to Women Rule on iTunes, rate us, and leave a review. Share our episodes on social media and follow me on Twitter at Brown. Women Rule is produced by Politico in partnership with Google and the Tory Burch Foundation. Now let's get to our interview. Secretary Chow, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thanks so much for having me. Great. So, so, you know, looking at your background, it was remarkable to see you've served four presidents. Yes. Reagan, Bush one, Bush two, and now Trump. So, I, you know, I... I I've, I've lived a long time. Yes, yeah, no, you, you know, I, I want to know, what's the biggest change you've seen here in Washington, having come here in the 80s, and now we're in 2017? Uh, what well, is the that? people are different. Mm-hmm. They keep on getting younger every year. Exactly, exactly. But the town well, itself, think, how politics pe- is here. I think people will probably say it's the increase in partisanship. But if you take a look at the long sweep of American history, you know, American politics is pretty robust, dating back to the founding of our country. If we thought that politics is confrontational now, we should really read about the founding fathers, how they struggled with founding a nation, but also with each other. And they were pretty rough on each other. And in those days, they actually spoke anonymously as well. So, you know, the American tradition is of a robust, vibrant democracy, but it's also one in which it's very confrontational. So how is that increase in partisanship coming back into an administration? How is that shaping how you have to do your job right now? I'm always very conscious about building bridges among diverse stakeholders. And I would prefer to bring people together and help the collaborative effort. And I think sometimes that is more difficult. On the other hand, it is what it is. Uh, again, it, it, I think part of that is, is uh, due to just the very fast pace of, you know, media exposure that we see. I mean, the 24-7 news cycle is so powerful, and it accelerates events and uh, activities so much. And actually how you ha- probably have to respond to things, I would yes. imagine. So we have to respond in a much quicker mm-hmm. um, fashion. And sometimes it's just nice to have some time to hold back a bit, think, be deliberative, and be more statesmanlike in response. 
so in this so coming now you're in the job I think two months now how are how are you managed how are you managing to do that given that the last time you served in you know in the government it was 2000 to 2000, 2001 to 2009 full eight years of the of Bush uh, you know H. it's w. actually Bush. very reassuring to have been a cabinet member before I'm a veteran this is basically year nine of being a cabinet <laughs> officer. Yeah. And I mentioned that because uh, my colleagues joke about that. I have uh, a number of colleagues who have worked in previous administrations at this level. So for them, you know, that experience is very helpful in shifting to this job, as it is for me as well. We're very sure-footed. We're mm-hmm. confident. We know what we're doing, and we know what's important. We reach out to Congress. They're a very important part of the activity and decision-making process here in Washington. Mm-hmm. We're very mindful of what the White House would like. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so having, you know, the experience, for example, I know the stakeholder groups. So when they come in and uh, ask for meetings, I know what they are interested in and how to respond to them. Mm -hmm. Um, And if they don't come in, I know who to reach out to saying, hey, I haven't seen this group. I should be seeing this group. Maybe they think I'm a bit too busy and they're reluctant or hesitant to bother me. So it really helps to have had previous government experience and certainly to have been in the cabinet before. To, to stay on just the theme of, of the four presidents, I, I'm going to put you on the spot here. I'd love to know for you, I would love for you to describe using one word each of those four presidents and experiences as possible. You know, bosses. it's different. Every yeah. president is different. And my yeah. proximity to the presidents were different. Mm-hmm. When I was first starting out, if I could have just caught a glimpse of oh, President right. Ronald Reagan, it would have made my not even... Week would have made my like yeah. my month, and then as I, you know, advanced in my career, I got to see more of the activities at the White House within the administration and got to know the presidents better. So each one is different, and they carry with them their particular style. And so. what's this? So given that you work directly for two presidents, George W. Bush, now Donald Trump, contrast the styles of the two as bo- bosses, I as leaders. Are, <laughs> I think both of them are very personable. Mm-hmm. They want to make connections. Um, you know, they view relationships as very important. And um, I think President uh, George W. Bush was very focused on security. And it was reflective of that time when he wanted to make sure that September 11th never occurs again during his tenure. And I think for President Trump, it's a different time. And he's extraordinarily accessible. I mean, people come in and out of the White House and and he's very accessible. He's very curious. He wants to learn. How often do you hear from him personally? Well, the the the, um, the rule for a cabinet is you never want to hear from him. Yeah. <laughs> you want to reach out to him yeah, yeah. and give yeah. him information. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. So uh, I've spent uh, a lot of time with him. Um, and uh, he's really delightful to be around. Um, your leadership style, how would you say you've evolved over these these four administrations? Or just to say, let's say the past two, because this is when it's a more comparable experience. I mean, how has your leadership style changed? Well, I'm an immigrant to this country. Mm-hmm. So in my advancement in my career, I've had to learn not only the job, but also American mainstream culture. I, I had to learn how to be a leader. I'm more confident now as a leader. When I first came to America, it was very difficult. And I think the vulnerabilities and the anxieties 
that I experienced has actually have actually made me a better leader. Talk a little bit about those vulnerabilities. I've, I've read about you. I'd love to hear it from you, though. You came here as an eight-year-old, and you didn't speak yes. English. You didn't know how to use a fork. Did not. <laughs> I used chopsticks. Yeah. And so it, everything was uh, new. We didn't understand the traditions here, the culture, the holidays even. So you learn. You, le- you learn, and I learned by observing and by listening and watching because we didn't have anybody that we knew who couldn't, you know, be our mentors. But you learn, you learn. I learned. I learned to make new friends. And I learned to, do, to learn on my own, which is a very important life lesson. Learning on your own? Yes. What do you mean by that? A lot of young women say to me that they're afraid that they won't get ahead because they, won't, they don't have a mentor. And I, I tried to reassure them. I said, it's nice, of course, if you have a mentor. But if you don't, it's okay. You can do it on your own. You have to teach yourself to learn on your own by observing others, by watching, by listening. And you can learn a lot on your own, even if you don't have a mentor. Um, the, your, 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 your parents, I mean, just briefly tell us the story of, of how you the story of your family coming from, from Taiwan. My parents have an unbelievably beautiful love story. They grew up in China during the chaos and turmoil of the Chinese Civil War. So during their you know, growing up years, they saw their country beset by natural disasters, foreign invasion, domestic turmoil, and my mother was born in Anhui province, and she had to six, relocate twice, once to Nanjing and then to Shanghai, in an effort for her and her family to find safety. And my father was a young farm boy from uh, outside of Shanghai. He came from a village of only 10 families. So my mother's name is Ruth Mulan Chu Chow. My father's name is Dr. James S initial, C initial, Chow. And these two young people under ordinary societal times would have never had a chance to meet with one another because they came from such disparate economic, socioeconomic backgrounds. And it was only because of the societal upheaval, uh, the advent of the collapse of the government, the Civil War, that... My father and my mother were able to meet unchaperoned. Mm. They met through mutual friends. And um, they met at the, uh, in the winter of 1949. But they knew they were too young. So, you know, they were with other of their peers, their friends. And they, subsequently, the Civil War climaxed. And my parents made their separate ways to Taiwan. My father looked for my mother for two years. And he was, you know, he would go and visit every school in Taiwan during his leisure time, what little he had in an effort to find her. And he finally did. And then they got, uh, he had to court her, win the approval of her parents. Then they got married and had two kids. And then he became the youngest sea captain of his time at the age of 29. That's pretty amazing. 
being in charge of a multi-million dollar cargo aboard a ship, uh, being, you know, the captain of the ship with 40-some-odd crew who are older than he was. I mean, he's an extraordinarily inspiring uh, So what lessons did you take from him and and your mother? Like, how did that story and that experience? Never give up. Yeah. Never give up. And also, you know, when I have difficulties in my lifetime, I think to myself, heck, this is nothing compared to what mom and dad went through. You know, they left their native country. They relocated to a different land. Ten years later, my father takes his national examination, scores number one, and he gets the opportunity to study abroad. And where do you think they wanted to go? This is a couple that's never met any, you know, white people. And they wanted to go to America. It speaks volumes about our country, the hope and opportunity that it represents. So my father came first because that was all that he could afford. I mean, he didn't have any money. And he certainly didn't have papers for us. So he was here alone in New York for three years before he was finally able to get the money, get the papers to bring my mother, my two sisters, and me to America. So my third sister um, was three years old before my father was able to see her. My mother was seven months pregnant when he left. So she was extraordinarily brave. They didn't know how long their separation would be. So yet when I talked to them, you know, they never thought of that period as being frightening. They were just such courageous souls and adventurous people. They thought they were building a better life for their children, and they had no fear. So which, when like when so when these thoughts like these self doubts come into your mind, you have first of all you have self doubt when you're of course kept, all the, I'm Asian yeah. American. Are you kidding? <laughs> and human all right? the time. Yes. So are those. <laughs> Are those the moments where you're, you think about your parents, you think, well, they, they went through a whole hell of a lot more than I did. And I, I do. Think, yeah, is that it? Absolutely. And, um, so I think to myself, you know, if they went through, you know, the trauma of 20th century history in China, I mean, surely I can handle what daily challenges or what that particular challenge I'm facing. But is it so that it gives simple? Me a lot of, it gives me a lot of strength. Is it and that my sisters, though? too. Oh, is it that simple, though, that... You, you, you think about it in those terms? Yes, or, of course. Or, yeah? Yeah. Because another thing that I think, another gift that my parents gave me was positive thinking. They really do believe that if you truly believe in something, you can do it. So they were very much into, I mean, they shaped their own destiny. And they believed that in this country, we can shape our own destiny. And it's incredibly empowering to their six daughters. They had six daughters. And no boys. And there's a 20-year difference between me, daughter number one, and my youngest sister, daughter number six, Angela Chow. Hmm. Wow. So, yes. And I hear they're all very successful. That's what I hear. <laughs> they're all very amazing. Yes. I'm really proud of them. Um, the, the, the immigrant experience, how, did that, how has that shaped the work that you've pursued, the work you're doing right now? I, you know, I believe that my dedication to public service stems from my own experience transitioning to this country. We didn't know so much, and yet we found it in America, you know, a, a land and a people of um, great welcome, generosity, and 
while we didn't know anybody at the beginning, eventually over time we got to know our neighbors. They took us to barbecues, picnics. You know, we got to make new friends. We went to church, made a lot of friends there. So, I you know I believe in civil society, and I believe that um, this country is so offers so much opportunities. And so, in my life, in my career, I've tried to. Help people understand that mainstream America has so much opportunity for them, and not to not to despair, and to have hope in this wonderful country called America. Do you have concerns about some of the more divisive sort of rhetoric that's coming that we're seeing? You know, uh, from this, this falling trend, out of last year, this trend of this trend of fearing the impact of immigrants and how they will change our country is ever present. They ebb and flow in intensity, but if you go back to the last period in which there was tremendous inflow of new immigrants, uh, it was in the turn of the century in the 1900s. Fourteen、uh, percent of the national population at that time、uh, were immigrants. That's an enormously high number, and they were not—they were white <laughs> Europeans. They just came from a different part of Europe. They didn't come from. Scotland, Britain, or you know Wales or Ireland, they came from Italy and other places in Western Europe, no less. I think what we're concerned about as a country is that we all become Americans, and we're trying to understand and define what that means. We are welcoming of immigrants. We are a nation of immigrants. I don't think any you know I don't think anyone should doubt that, but it's the it's it's the balance. Of how do we how do we in, incorporate? I don't want to use assimilate because that's a kind of a cold word as well. But how do we welcome all these newcomers to our country and help them understand how uniquely blessed they are to be Americans? I think that's what we're talking about. Some critics of the president would say he hasn't always spoken to that degree in that way. Uh, with well, some of、I、the think, early rhetoric of his campaign about immigrants,、um, has that concerned you? Well, I think the president won an election that many people did not expect him to win, and it's because he tapped into a vein of anxiety and fear and vulnerability that's propelled by how fast things are happening. I don't think that trade was the issue that causes, to, you know,、um, anxiety. I think actually it's the galloping pace of technology. People feel as if, especially older Americans, residents of this country, feel as if we, can, you know, and I'm going to put myself. I don't. I'm going to make it easier,、um, more empathetic. You know, we, more more people feel as if they're being left out. So trade is just a manifestation of our the outsourcing of our jobs. It's because technology, or forty、uh, years ago, it used to be called automation. That's contributing to transforming the job skills content of the new types of jobs that we have. So, as a former Secretary of Labor, I'm very concerned about the displacement of people, workers, by technology. So, I think that is what's being discussed also. And sometimes we're inartful in describing what's happening, but. I think it's positive that we're having this discussion about the impact of technology, you know, on our daily lives. The impact of newcomers coming in. How do we, how do we welcome them, and 
how do we continue to have this mosaic, this diversity, which is so much a part of our American experience? Would you like to see the president talk about it more in those terms? Do you think he does enough? Uh, listen, I don't advise the president. I think the, the president is a very straightforward talking man. And uh, sometimes he may not speak in the way that we expect u- politicians usually to speak. But in many ways, his approach has um, brought in, you know, and uh, awoken or, you know, he has given voice to a whole gr- a segment of our population who felt that they had no voice. And so when we talk about a national dialogue, a national discussion, I think everyone needs to have their place at the table. And that's how we resolve certain issues and differences as robust uh, and confrontational as it is. I mean, I'm Asian American. I'm uncomfortable initially. I was very com- uncomfortable initially. And I still am to some extent with the confrontational nature of the American dialogue. It's people are very direct, very blunt, very straightforward. I'm not used to that. It took me a while to kind of learn to get my oar in the water, so to speak. When I was at the Peace Corps, uh, I, I began to notice these uh, cultural differences. So, for example, Asians, they never interrupt people. You let the other person finish. The other person is considerate. They finish, and they let you speak. But, you know, in America, if you don't interrupt, the other person would just keep on talking. And it's our custom that if you don't interrupt, then I keep on talking because I expect you to interrupt. So for at least for me as Asian American, it was very difficult for me to break in because a person who was speaking would never let me. It was like double. Yes. And like in a town like ditch. Washington, you're. T- oh, it was like doing like double Dutch, like yeah. um, um, what is that called? Uh, jump rope. Like, you, you, you know, you couldn't, I couldn't you get could, in. You couldn't get in, yes. You got to get in. You got to be right. really coordinated and skillful about so, it. And it, it's a probably right, like a skill you had to acquire over time, right? Or yes. was that, is that what you're talking about? Or yes, just get comfortable with that? Yeah, so you have to learn to kind of break in and speak up and and voice your opinion. How that, long did it take for you to figure that out? Or like, how did you Oh, my gosh, 40, 50 years? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It was very difficult. Yeah, yeah I could imagine. Um, being a woman at the table, um, women in seats of power, uh, how does that, the fact that we have... Oh, you asked me before, yeah, what was yeah. my style? I think uh, by nature and by experience, I'm, I'm very collaborative. I reach out. I'm very inclusive. And I, I believe I am very considerate. I always try to seek other opinions, other people's opinions. And I still remember being left out. And so I always do, I always try that if I see someone at the sidelines, that I try to bring them in. Because I remember what it was like to be on the outside and how difficult it was to come in. Like, What's like a one trick or one thing that you would tell like a younger person on that front of, of building bridges or, you know, like what's the one little trick? Don't that be people- afraid. Yeah. Don't be afraid. As I mentioned, I come from an Asian American background mm-hmm. and where I was so afraid of making a mistake because I thought like, you know, that some new national newspaper would say Elaine Chow made a mistake and disgraced her whole family. <laughs> so that's a big burden to <laughs> oh, carry. I hear you. <laughs> and then yeah. I learned it was like an, an Asian culture, every word counts. So you speak very carefully and the listener listens very carefully. 
Then I realized, okay, everybody here is like on output. Nobody's that careful about listening. So if you said something and you said it wrong, it's not a big deal because they probably didn't remember what you just said. So that was very liberating. Yeah. So it's different cultures. Yeah, and yeah, I, yeah. I kind of made a joke at the last one. But, oh, yeah. I, you know, so I, th- I would encourage but not to be afraid. This is a very forgiving country. It's a very generous country with wonderful, kind people. And if you make a mistake, it's okay. You know, most mistakes are not fatal. It's not a big deal. Yeah. Can can, you give me an instance of you uh, being the woman at the table in a place where maybe you were the only one or you were in a, yeah, probably. You can probably tell. Yes. A lot of times. What's like the most sort of the surprising story or point to an outcome that because you were there providing perspective different than your male colleagues? Something changed or something was different? Well, I'll give you a simple example. I mean, when I, you know, until. I became um, the head of uh, an organization. I was primarily in organizations that were male-dominated. I mean, I was in transportation. You know, I was in... That's a pretty um, male-oriented sector. And everything was different. Meaning that, you know, just the pre-meeting banter would be about sports, of which I had... No expertise, nor interest. Now, I'm older. I can say no interest. Before, mm-hmm. you know, I would hesitate to say that. Did you but ever try to learn sports, though? So, like no. A, a sport, you, didn't, you didn't? I was willing to compromise, but not that much. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, because, like, in this town, right, everyone talks about the Nationals. They talk about the Redskins. So you never felt the pressure to sort of just if read I had the headlines. a natural yeah. interest, I certainly yeah, would okay. have. Well, and I'm not though. saying yeah. that I hate sports, yeah. not at all. But I found more compelling things to be interested in. My, so I, I give a little joke. My husband said, gosh, you were a lot more interested in, in sports when we were dating. And yeah. I said, "You're yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, so then how did you find that way to connect before meetings with the banter? What, 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 was, what was Elaine Chow's move? So I mentioned that point because I think it's difficult for, young, for women. If you're in that environment and you don't know, so, I, I, you know, I made a big fool. I made a a big fool of myself because I would always get the Chicago Bears and the Chicago Cubs mixed up. But that was a big no-no, <laughs> yeah, so yeah. I remember that. Um, so I think, you know, in an environment like that, you do have to try. and But you have to be your... My point is, you have to be yourself. And if, you know, sports is really difficult, you have to at least know the rudimentary. But you don't have to always go along with everything. You have to kind of keep a true kernel of who you are. And have confidence in that. So then, how did you how did you connect being in a, a male dominated uh, to, to sort of work your way up uh, to connect with a male colleague? Because I knew what I was doing. Mm-hmm. Because I was in transportation and I was in banking, in finance, so I had incredible subject area expertise. So I knew what I was talking. about. So you about. prepared, like yes, you, you, and also so I think subject yeah. area expertise empowers, yeah, the person, yeah, and so people. You had to, they had to come to you because they needed your expertise. Yeah. No, I always feel like if you're prepared as a woman, I always feel I have to prepare. But men don't yeah. prepare that much. So why do we have to prepare as much? It is what it is. Why and is I, that? Because we probably are try, have to work harder. And I, I prepare so much more than some of my male colleagues. And I, and I know women who are prepared more and we get ridiculed. You know, it's like, oh, my gosh, you know, she's just preparing so much. She's such an automaton. You know, can't she just, like, wing it? 
Well, I'm not comfortable winging it. I, th- I don't prepare as much as I used to because experience does count. Yeah. But in the beginning, yeah, I prepare. And I try to make it look as if I wasn't preparing because yeah. I didn't want to be ridiculed. Yeah, I hear you. Um, let's turn to the Department of Transportation, uh, the big infrastructure plan. Um, how are you working on the, with the White House on this effort? Like, what can we expect in the next few months? When is this Well, the happen? White House yeah. and the Department of Transportation, along with about seven to eight uh, different uh, departments and secretaries, are working together very well, I might add, on the infrastructure uh, proposal. We're looking at probably something uh, in the third quarter. Uh, originally, the plan was uh, to take uh, to address the Affordable Health Care Act repeal in the first, uh, you know, as the first agenda item. Then move on to tax reform, and then thirdly to tackle the infrastructure needs. I think once again the president has taken hold of this very tough problem, made a bold and uh, exciting challenge to our country that we've got to address finally, the infrastructure needs of our country, that our productivity and our competitiveness as a nation is at stake. So uh, we have various cabinet secretaries. There's an interagency workforce uh, that's headed by the National Economic Council. And there's a task force on infrastructure here at the department. And we're all working on coming up with a proposal hearing stakeholders of various types and the public, listening to them as to what are the priorities, what is important, and how do we pay for these infrastructure needs. And there's obviously a range of options. Uh, The Democrats have already come out with a proposal that um, requires 100% uh, funding by the government which I think is uh, probably not realistic because we just don't have that kind of money. It would obviously do harm, even greater harm, to increasing the deficit. So we have to think about ways in which we can, how do we fund this program? How do we finance the infrastructure needs? A trillion dollars over 10 years. And then um, we want to also address how do we get more projects sooner to the private, you know, to the public, so to speak, so that private uh, investors so that the private sector can think about pension funds, for example, um, can think about, uh, you know, investing, helping to invest in the infrastructure needs of our country. The permitting part is important because a lot Mm -hmm. of uh, projects are hung up in regulatory red tape. And so we want to do what's right you know, protect the environment, um, make sure that there's due process, but but where there is unnecessary red tape, how do we get rid of that so that more projects can uh, see the light of day so that municipalities, cities, states can begin to address the funding needs? How do you do that from the, f- the federal government perch, given that this, these are often well, local... There are federal regulations, okay. there mm-hmm. are state and local, and we will work with, mm-hmm. we work with the state and local okay. municipalities. But it's a, it's a heavy lift, no and doubt I assume that's to address that. the, the, the concern that's been raised in the past. That what, what's shovel ready? Also, investors, you know, all they want is certainty. And they want uh, 
to reduce their risk profile. So if the if it takes a long time for a project to be ready to be financed, that increases the risk profile to potential investors. If there's certainty and if there's shorter pe- time period, there's less risk uh, for investors. What's your level of confidence that this can happen this year? I think we can do. I think we can do something this year in terms of proposing something, but obviously it's a 10-year plan. Mm-hmm. So, But pass something over. this year? Well, we, ho- we certainly hope so. Given the, the challenges on the Hill right now uh, with getting bipartisan support, what efforts are you making? I think, bi- you know, I think infrastructure needs is a bipartisan uh, concern. Um, the majority, the minority leader has already said that he is concerned about the infrastructure needs. And so they've come out with an infrastructure proposal. The difference is in the funding. The department itself, priorities for women. Give me some example of maybe in the infrastructure bill where we're not talking about something or we're not realizing that there's an issue that disproportionately affects women. Right? You think about an infrastructure bill, it's maybe not, we don't think like that's a women's issue. Is there a women's issue in infrastructure somewhere? Infrastructure issues are everyone's issues, including women's issues, because if uh, if a working mother cannot get to work on a timely basis, if she is uh, stuck in congested traffic, um, her quality of life is impacted. You know, she can't. If it was if it's rush hour after work, that's time that she can't spend with her kids. If she's caught in congestion on the way to work. That's time that uh, that's wasted for her employer. So all of our quality of life is tied up with the infrastructure, uh, the quality of infrastructure uh, in our country. And is there anything you're doing here in the department? You've uh, been a big, big proponent of mentoring. Given that experience that you've had, like if at the DOT, is there anything you want to do specific to that point that deals with women or deals with minorities? create the pipeline like there's so many yeah, opportunities yeah. here and there's so many wonderful existing programs already mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so for example there's a uh, there's an upcoming department of transportation bring your daughters and sons mm-hmm. to work day mm-hmm. so i'm probably going to participate in that there are 500 children that will be here that day so i hope to meet them but there are also we have programs to bring along you know managers mm-hmm. um we want to have we want to we want to allow people the opportunity to fulfill their potential regardless of their background and i have obviously a special uh, understanding of the uh, challenges that uh, women of color uh, women um, the asian american community may have but i want to make sure that everyone has the opportunity to access you know all the chances they have to fulfill their potential in our country. And we have so many programs for women engineers and for uh, women construction workers in the department. There's so many. And at the Department of Labor, you know, we had, um, we've started a number of programs for women. And at at the Peace Corps, where I was director, and at the Department of Labor, you know, I had an executive team, a leadership team, that uh, achieved gender parity. We had women who were you know, more than 50% at, um, of the leadership. Was that conscious on your part or just? I think my, you know, my um, 
view of what constitutes a leader is broader in, mm-hmm. you know, in definition. So I'm more open to recruiting a different kind of leader, whatever they look like. And I think my aperture for what constitutes, what, what a leader should look like is very broad based on my own experience. So I look for talent wherever I can find it. And I think because of my experience, I'm able to find um, you know, great leaders everywhere. Are there enough women in this cabinet? I think it's about four. And uh, in the last administration, it was about uh, five. It was and seven. So, was it seven? Mm-hmm. Over time or at one time? I don't think uh, at one time. I think it was yeah. at one time, uh, it was about five. I would be surprised. Trump, we had four. Obama, seven. Oh, a lot, okay. Yeah. Uh, yes. President Obama's. W. Bush was four. Clinton was six. I think uh, in the, in and the, then, the first, and then the first cabinet. Had, yeah, then then he the subsequently first. had yeah, five. Yes. So I think things will, you know, I think um, things will change. I mean, there'll be, there'll be uh, people who will come in, um, people who will leave. And I think you also need to take a look at the sub-cabinet pipeline as well. Because I was a deputy, you know, this is my, literally my fifth, my fourth time back in gov- my fifth time back in government. And it, it really helps to have had experience. I remember sitting in a cabinet room with um, one of my fellow cabinet colleagues in President Bush 43's administration. He'd never been to Washington. It's extraordinarily difficult to catapult into that kind of position when you don't have the network, you don't understand this town, you don't know what the rhythm of this town is. I mean, it's hard. So um, I think experience helps. And the fact that I was Deputy Secretary of Transportation before at a sub-cabinet level, prepare me for the cabinet. So the last, just to wrap up, the last the last question, of course, you're part of one of the most enduring couples, Washington power couples, maybe the definition of Washington power couple. We you're, don't you, think so. You don't think so? You're no. just saying, um, I'm just hopeful that I'm going to have dinner with my husband tonight. Uh, uh, well, we'll see. Um, it's a Thursday <laughs> night. It's possible. You know, what? what is it like at home at night when you guys, do you talk about work? Do you kibitz? Do you uh, talk about we things? We talk other than about the- ordinary things like... Mm-hmm. Who's going to take out the garbage? Mm-hmm. And he's actually a very, very thoughtful, um, mm-hmm. you know, husband. Very, very considerate. Mm-hmm. So you're going to totally laugh at this. Mm-hmm. But he did my laundry last night, so I'm yeah. going to ask: Has it been folded? Yeah, <laughs> it's not bad. No, he's so he's very thoughtful. But do you, very, do you guys talk about work? Not too much. No, is that like self-preservation? Like you just are immersed in it every day? No, because or what we don't is see it? each other that often, so yeah. we have other things to talk about. Yeah. You know, we talk about home, Kentucky, Louisville, what's happening there, what our friends mm-hmm. are doing, mm-hmm. and what are we going to do this weekend, and is he going to be going back home? Where will I be? How are we going to get our schedules to mesh? Mm-hmm. So um, he'll probably be here this weekend, and uh, then he'll go back home uh, to Kentucky on Sunday, and I'll stay here. Yeah, Elaine and Mitch, they're just like us. <laughs> and we love movies, so we're going to see, like, we're going to negotiate over what oh, movies really? to see. He likes the, you know, he likes these action shoot 'em up flicks. I like the kind of like, you know, the more sentimental ones. So who so, wins out? Most of the time, we actually, we, we kind of switch. Really? Yeah. Like if His you turn go, one yeah. time, I turn another time. That's good. Sounds like the consummate senator. <laughs> All right. Well, it was a pleasure, Secretary. Thank you so much. Thank you.